Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio.
Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for tuning in this evening. This is T-Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a certified energy and sound therapist and positive psychology practitioner with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, our chat room is open, so please feel free to join the discussion that's happening online. We do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, go ahead and post it, and we will do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and you just simply cannot continue to listen online, please feel free to call us directly by dialing 3 and that way you can listen via phone or please be sure to use your Bluetooth if you are driving about. You know, we've discussed many different topics on this show, some of which include near-death experiences and connecting with our loved ones who have crossed. Tonight, we're going to speak about the way in which we die. It's not comfortable for many to broach this subject with loved ones at all, and you know, it's something that we simply try to avoid, I guess. We we just don't want to talk about it and we would rather just wait until the moment comes and deal with things when it's time to deal with things. But that doesn't make it in the best interest of anyone, really. My guest tonight, Fran Smith, co-author of Changing the Way We Die, is not only going to address the discomfort that surrounds death, but she'll also suggest that there really is a better way to die. Fran is a writer, editor, writing coach, and communications consultant. Her work has appeared in O, the Oprah magazine, Red Book, Salon, Good Housekeeping, Prevention, Health, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and dozens of other publications and websites. She's also won many awards for medical reporting, healthcare, investigations, and feature writing, and she shared a Pulitzer Prize as a reporter at the San Jose Mercury News. She co-authored the first reporter's guidebook published by the Association of Healthcare Journalists, and she is a frequent speaker on the power of storytelling, healthcare writing, and effective communications. So good evening, Fran. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking time to be here with us tonight. How are you being this evening? I'm great and very grateful to be here, so thank you for having me. Oh, well, we appreciate it. This is kind of a tough topic, you know. It's not something people like to talk about, and yet when the time comes to determine what we need to do in the way that we die, we don't always have a say if we're the one that's departing because maybe we're not in the, in the um, right place to do that and we leave it to our loved ones and sometimes they don't know what to do. But this is mostly about hospice care and I'd like to start, if you would, by telling people how you came to actually write this book. Well, I'd written uh, a lot about healthcare over the years, and you know, and people often have complaints about their healthcare. And you know, I found that when people uh, followed, sometimes followed people into hospice care, you know, followed them, you know, as they as their disease progressed, and then they were transitioned into hospice care, and the care was so good in most cases. It was really um, kind of incredible to see and to start thinking about why do we have to wait till we're dying to get this kind of compassionate care. And uh, the immediate impetus for the book, I wrote the book with a friend, co-author Sheila Himmel, and our fathers died around the same time. My father died in a hospital after a, a very long decline, Sheila's father died also after a long decline, but in hospice care. And we had very different experiences as the daughters. Um, and we talked, as friends do, about the difference that hospice care can make. And that really got us interested in looking at the whole 
landscape and, and trying to figure out why people don't engage these issues in a, in a more forthright way. I think it's scary. I think people are uh, almost, it's almost like if someone has cancer and they say they have cancer, all of a sudden people, I'm a cancer survivor, all of a sudden people, <laughs> they don't want to be near you because they think they're going to catch it, <laughs> you know, right. and uh, yeah, and I think hospice might be, have that same connotation. Yeah, but, you know, one of the takeaways for us is that people who, families, people who discuss these issues in advance and really can, can have honest conversations about what they want, what they don't want, what their goals are, how they envision that last part of their life, are really in a position to make better decisions when the time comes. And the worst time to start thinking about it is in the middle of a crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, I thought years ago that hospice was a place you went to, a physical place that you went to, to die. And you didn't get out once you were in hospice. That was the end of the story. But it's not really a place to go. It's more of, and I know I'm not going to say this properly, but I'll do the best I can. Hospice almost refers to, as weird as this going to sound, a way of life, doesn't it? Well, yeah, you know, and that misconception is so common. Most people do think it's a place you go. And there are inpatient hospice facilities. There are hospice wings in nursing homes and some hospitals. So there are inpatient hospice beds. But most hospice care is provided in people's homes or wherever they happen to live, be that an assisted living facility, a nursing home, long-term care facility. And survey after survey shows that most Americans say they want to die at home. So hospice is really the best way to help you do that. I, this, this is a question that is probably going to be very controversial to some of our listeners, and I apologize if I'm offending anyone. I certainly don't mean to be, but I've been through a lot of different processes myself. So I'm, I'm going to ask this. The healthcare system, are they pushing people to die at home? Because to me, I know in talking to people after the fact, when a parent, let's say, has passed away at home and the children are little, those children have told me, who are now adults, for the rest of my life, every time I walked in that living room, that's where mom was, where the Christmas tree was. I couldn't take it. I would never do that to my kids. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I've never thought about that. But years ago, we would wake people in their homes until funeral parlors became the norm. And I'm wondering, is it because of the way our health care system works that they actually drive you out of the hospital so you can't spend as much time there and you almost have to pass away at home because you don't have an alternative? Well, you know, that's a very complicated question, and it's actually a great question. So I hope, I hope it doesn't generate a lot of controversy. The answer might generate controversy, but it's, it's a very important question. And people, you know, the people that we talk to, and our book is filled with stories of patients, real patients. These are not made-up people. You know, these are not made-up names. Um, and in, in almost no case was anybody forced into a home situation because of finances or against their will. So if people, you know, want to keep going back to the hospital or want to end up in an ICU, you, you can do that. In, once you're in hospice care, there are pretty strict rules about who can be in an inpatient hospice care facility. And it, 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 it varies. The practices vary around the country. But, but we do in the book write about one situation, a kind of situation you're describing, which was a young family. It was a young father who was dying, and there were two young boys at home. And it was a very stressful situation. And he was initially in an inpatient 
facility, and then, you know, because of insurance rules, he stabilized and was sent home, and, and it was a, a terrible situation all around. And then the hospice said, well, now that now that you've shown you can't do it, we can bring him back to the inpatient facility, and the, and the wife was obviously very upset about this, you know, all this moving back and forth for no other reason than to document to an insurance company that, you know, they tried to go the home, home route. It's, I think, um, yeah, I, I, sometimes when I hear people saying that they're taking someone home, because you just don't know. People, not everybody who goes into hospice, hospice passes away either. Yeah, well, the hospice is available it, under most insurance companies, under Medicare, Medicaid hospices for people who have a terminal illness and a life expectancy of six months if the disease were to run its natural course, you know, if you weren't doing things to, you know, like chemotherapy for cancer or that kind of thing. Right. And people sometimes outlive that prognosis. Yes. You know, in part they outlive it because once they get really good comfort care and and really, you know, comprehensive support that hospice at its best provides, they do really well. And when people live past that six months, either they can be recertified to continue on hospice care or sometimes people go off the hospice service and then go, come back on as the need develops and as their, as their condition changes. And I think a lot of people thought, too, that hospice was strictly for cancer patients, but it is not. Right. That's another real uh, common misconception. When hospice started, it's, it's exactly 40 years old, started in this country 40 years ago, and at the time it was really cancer patients. Now, um, more than half of patients in hospice care have non-cancer as their primary diagnosis. So Alzheimer's, dementia patients, kidney failure, congestive heart failure, really all the things that we die of. Right. And, and a lot of, uh, I think, um, a lot of the places around where I am, I'm near the Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice, um, mm-hmm. which started, I, that was probably like 35 or 40, I think it's just the 35th year, and it could be 40, I'm not sure. Uh, but they have really extensive training for anyone who wants to volunteer to, to assist in hospice care. I would presume, which may not be the smartest thing, that <laughs> a lot of the hospice places do require training you can't just go in you know in order to help the people in the way that the proper way to help the people throughout their hospice stay Mm -hmm. well uh, under the medicare law hospices are required to utilize volunteers in some way and Mm -hmm. really any good hospice program that has volunteers working directly with patients would provide extensive training and you know it's such a wonderful thing to volunteer for a hospice program but even on the volunteer side nobody you know nobody should just be thrown into that situation without without really good training some hospices use volunteers really more for clerical or you know other kinds of functions and so the training isn't as important although you know in in really in any capacity if you're in a hospice program you can you can have face-to-face face-to-face contact with family members with with patients and so you know at least some training is is important now you just said something that uh, i did not realize you said under the medicare law so does hospice fall under medicare law yeah there is a a medicare hospice benefit and there has been since 80s okay and And but it's not just for people on medicare obviously no Medicare are eligible for hospice through Medicare, but but most private insurance companies cover, you know, commercial insurance plans cover hospice, mm-hmm. Medicaid covers hospice. So, you know, most people who have insurance have 
some coverage for for hospice and 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 most of these plans actually follow the the Medicare hospice benefit but the reality is that most people who wind up in hospice care are over 65 so something like i think you know almost 90% of patients who die in hospice care are on Medicare they're over they're in that population oh see no i did not know that because as as an energy and sound therapist i do work on people with cancer and sometimes <laughs> You know, they're coming here very late, and they are on their way to going into hospice. And, I mean, I've had clients who are, I don't know, 38 to, to 50. I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of them. I, I, I honestly think I've only had two people over the age of 65 mm-hmm. that went into hospice. So I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah, no, most patients, and, you know, it's the, it's, it's the demographic, you know, that has these illnesses, right, Alzheimer's, cancers, you know, even though, True. you know, you, you work with people, and we all know people, young people who have cancer. You know, if you look kind of statistically, it's a, it's a disease of aging. Um, yes. That's just, it just, that just hit me, though, because I thought, wow, that I did not realize that at all because, you know, cancer isn't discriminatory. I mean, right now I have a client who's two and a half years old, you right. know, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it runs the, the whole range. Now, uh, you know, people don't really want to talk about hospice too much, as we said at the beginning, but I find that your book is really, it's actually good for people to read so that they, because you can relate to some of the stories. There are stories in here that you can relate to, and you'll get a lot of information out of it, which will help people to decide what it is they need to do if this should come up. And it's always in, you know, it's nice to, it's kind of like making your will. You make your will ahead of time while you're sober and you can do this. You (laughs) decide things ahead of, you know what I mean? Yeah, while you're in your right mind, you have all your faculties. It's the same thing. It's just, it's not an insurance policy, but it is a way to know that things will be taken care of the way that you want them to be taken care of. So you also offer in your book uh, different, you know, support systems that hospice offers and Mm -hmm. the opportunities it provides so that people can really live until they do pass. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, that's such an important point because we found, and we opened the book with a story of a man who was 50, diagnosed with uh, an aggressive leukemia at age 50, and went through brutal treatment for for years for five, for almost 5 years and had you know 100 250 medications and he spent 600 nights in the hospital and he had a stem cell transplant and lots of surgery and you know just all of it and he was kind of horrified when someone first suggested hospice he wanted to keep the keep up the treatments and he wanted to keep fighting and finally he agreed to meet with a social worker who told him that even in the final stages of a terminal illness, there are choices. Is there someone you want to mend fences with? Is there work you want to finish? Do you want to keep your family and your friends close? And and the the young social worker really distilled the essence. He asked this patient, a man named Rusty, he asked not how do you want to die, he said what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And that really changed Rusty's whole thinking about the possibilities available to him. And he, he ended up being on hospice care for six months. And in that time, he did spend time with his family. He wrote a book about cancer. He explored his religious heritage. And, and it was a really meaningful time for him and for his family, for his wife and his kids and, and, and for his community, his friends. I think that's very true that it's in perspective and how you shift things you you know what people can be negative and just go down that road but if you turn it around 
in any situation, whether it's hospice or anything else, you just turn it around and look at it differently, it can be a more positive experience. And I find your book to be that way in that you, you tell the stories. We know they're real. Or, you know, this isn't fiction. And it, it's very gracefully written. It's, very, it's done in a way that it's soft. It's, I, I, I honestly have trouble finding a word for it because I just think it's done so well and, and eloquently written so that people don't fear there is no fear that's involved in when you read your book. And I'm quite sure you wanted to not have that happen. <laughs> you know, that was well, probably one of the goals, to not scare people to death, right? <laughs> no, you know, we really wanted, we saw so many examples of just grace, of dignity, of families really being there for someone they loved. And, you know, and not to sugarcoat it, you know, we also saw, situations that were very difficult but we really wanted to capture the humanity of of all of this and and we found that the you know the the topic actually the more we got into it it wasn't depressing at all it was actually really life affirming yes i can understand that i mean because some people do think oh i don't want to talk about that but they they do it with so many things like, i don't want to write my will let's not talk about that we don't need to talk about life insurance we don't need to do these things it's too far off in the future and yet we just don't know when the future is going to just hit us in the face and there it is. And I don't know. I think that there aren't a whole lot of books out there that speak to this the way that, that you and Sheila do. And, and I think you should be, you know, commended for that because it really, it gets the point across and allows people to, to set things up and realize, oh, this is something important to do without instilling any kind of a fear, as I said before, or grossing people out or making them think, oh, it's never going to happen. It just is, I just really love the way that it's written, and I think that you did a great job with that. And it also explains things like how someone would go about choosing a good hospice. What do they need to know to do that? Yeah, well, this is important because in most communities, you know, we were surprised. We we went into this thinking that hospice was kind of this marginal thing because we really, you know, don't talk about it a whole lot. And it turns out to be huge. There are um, thousands of hospice programs across the country. 1.6 million Americans a year die in hospice care, so, and that's 44% of all deaths, $17 billion industry. So it's huge. And what that means is that in lots of communities, People have choices. There are better programs and maybe less better programs. So it is important if you're in a community that has some that has options to to explore those options. And I know people think they get a hospice referral. The last thing they think about is shopping around. Um, but it's important. And so a couple things to to look for is one. Um, you know, what, is, what are the qualifications of particularly the medical staff and the medical director who's the doctor in charge of it? Is it someone who's board certified in palliative medicine, which is the specialty of, of pain and symptom management? Another thing is to ask about the staffing. Um, will I see the same team, the same nurse, social worker, aid consistently, or is it going to be a rotating, ever-changing cast of characters? And then... Finally, and you know, we always tell people this, is when you call up and ask questions like this, do a gut check. Pay attention to how the person on the, you know, the other end of the phone or at the conference table if you're having a meeting, pay attention to how that person answers your questions. Are they looking you in the eye? Are they taking as much time as you need to get 
all of your questions answered. And that can be a really good indication of the kind of care that you or, or your loved one is going to receive. You know, is it someone who's really go, going to be there for you and present and do what you need, or is it someone who is kind of looking at their watch and, you know, ready to run off to the next meeting or, or fill out the paperwork? That's true. And it's, the people in hospice, when you ultimately uh, – I've been in situations where I walk into someone's home and the hospice nurse or hospice volunteer will come in. It's not – just for the patient either they're there to help the the caretakers right well you know and that was really one of the great um advances that hospice you know the whole hospice movement made is that it really looked first of all looked at patients as more than their disease but really as people and it looks at you know the the unit of care as they call it you know basically the client is not just that person who is you know dealing with a disease, but it is the whole family, however somebody defines their family. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they're actually DNA or not. Right. So part of, the, part of the, you know, the team will provide social work support, help with practical matters, uh, might be, you know, volunteers can help with cars or help you to fill out your taxes, you know, all those things that kind of can pile up when there's a crisis in the household. Uh, there's spiritual care as, as, part of the, uh, hosp- as part of what hospice offers for people who want that. And again, that can, you know, that can mean a lot of different things, and it really needs to be tailored to, to whatever the family wants. And, and there's also uh, bereavement care. So once a loved one dies, the hospice doesn't just drop you. Uh, but they offer bereavement services for up to 13 months after the death of the of the patient. Which is extremely important because you probably know as well as I do, everybody comes to your aid at the time of, you know, uh, someone's passing, but as soon as the funeral is over, you're alone. Everybody, go, everybody <laughs> goes back to their life. They have to. The world has to go on, but there aren't as many people, and now you're not knowing what to do and you have to seek, you know, help out on your own therapy or whatever. So that's a great thing that they offer as well. Yeah, um, we, write, we wrote about a group in uh, the book, a bereavement group, and it was a, a group of people who had all lost spouses. And it turned out that they had all come come from really, you know, long-term good relationships. And so every and everyone came to the screen. You know, they were all just really having a hard time getting back to their lives and work and sleep and, and everything and found that, you know, their friends didn't kind of were either too worried about them or kind of didn't want to hear it again. And But nobody really wanted to come to this group. Every single one of them said, I'm not a group person. I don't want to hear somebody else's problems. I've got my own. And, so, and they all, you know, they all ended up in this group really because they needed somewhere to turn. And over a couple of years, they really developed this incredible bond with each other. They're now like family. They celebrate holidays together. And, you know, holidays can be very difficult for for someone who's bereaved. They celebrate holidays. They they hang out together. And actually, out of this group, three couples have come out. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Three couples and two chapters in our book. So, yeah. Yes, yes. You're know, like, yeah, okay. <laughs> it took me a second to, to re-register yeah. that. I'm like, oh, all right, yes, I get that. You know, there, were, there are people who actually believe, and I've had this said to me, that, you know, oh, oh, sometimes you go to hospices, well, don't they just, isn't that just where they, like, help you die, like the Kevorkian method? It's, it's almost like you're assisting them. And I'd say to them, no, that's really not. Why is that out there? Why do well, people think you know, it's an assisted type of suicide? 
Yeah, you know, well, I mean, the language gets confusing. And, and, you know, hospice is kind of a weird word anyway. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. it sounds sort of like hospital, but but there's a real difference. And assisted suicide really means that one person helps another uh, to voluntarily bring about his or her her own death. And, you know, physician-assisted suicide, which is now legal in a number of states, a a doctor writes a prescription for someone who's terminally ill and you know that person for lethal doses of medication and the, and then that patient can take the medication when uh they choose mm-hmm. that's very different from the hospice approach you know the whole the whole idea about hospice it, it it's about managing pain it's about helping people live as fully as possible and it's about doing nothing to hasten death and doing nothing to forestall death so just let it happen naturally. I think people believe that if you're in hospice, you're in a hospital bed and you can't do anything. You're hooked up to machines and oxygen tanks and IVs and, and tubes and wires, and, and they think you can't do anything. That is absolutely not the case. No, this is actually the alternative to that scenario. Um, if you're in a hospital and hooked up to machines, you can't do anything. And if you are on hospice care, you're not going to be hooked up to machines. I mean, deciding to go into hospice care is really a decision not to go that route. And we saw and you know, and have in our book really incredible stories of people who did well for a time. You know, I mentioned Rusty earlier. We write about a mm-hmm. woman who was in her 90s, and she was really, really sick when she came into hospice care, and she was very confused. And the hospice physician and the hospice team, they streamlined her medications. They got her back. She, so she became she was alert again. They got her back up and walking. She had more energy, and she was on hospice for 14 months. And during that time, she went to the beach with her husband. She was a fabulous quilter, and every Wednesday her quilting group would come over, and they would do that. And you know, sometimes she didn't feel up for doing it, but she would just sit with them. And one of the most amazing things is she got to see her eldest grandchild, her eldest grandchild, her granddaughter get married mm-hmm. during that time, and uh, her the uh, granddaughter had a baby, so she got to hold the, her first great-grandchild, and she died just a few hours later. That's, you know, and those types of stories are wonderful because then I think people truly realize that, oh, okay, it's not like you're just going someplace and you're laying there like a vegetable waiting for, you know, you, to take your last breath. That's absolutely not what it is. It's, you're really, your book is really teaching people what hospice really means because I don't think people understand that unless they have gone through it with someone or, or know someone who is a hospice caretaker. Do you think that's fair to say? I, I think that's very fair to say. And we heard from families again and again, they wished they'd known about hospice sooner and considered it earlier. Most people, you know, as I said, people are eligible for hospice if they have the six-month prognosis, but most people don't come in until the final days or weeks of life. Right. But, you know, and then, and, pretty, that and woman, then it's late to get the benefits, really. Right. And then, but that 93-year-old, I mean, she, I think she was 93, wasn't she? Was she 90? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, she, um, I, the fact that she was 14 months there, it's like, you go, you go, Granny. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was really kind of cool, you know. I was like, wow, look at her. You know, she was probably waiting to see that great-grandchild, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, some, some family members believe that's, that is the case. Yeah, it very well could be. Now, there is a there is a phrase that I've heard, and it's um, death panels. 
people talk about or were talking about death panels, and I think it's a pretty recent phrase. I think it came out during the whole Obama health care reform thing. Can you speak to that? Sure. Yes, and it did come out during the uh, Obamacare uh, controversy, back, you know, when the Affordable Care Act was first proposed, and there was a lot of controversies, I'm, I'm sure you remember, and death panels became this kind of slogan, and while, you know, it's a pretty catchy slogan and a great soundbite, what, what, what it referred to was a provision in Obamacare that would have reimburse doctors would have allowed you know medicare to reimburse doctors and the government to reimburse doctors for time they spent talking with patients about their end of life options so you know you go to your doctor now and the doctor does things and tests you and pokes you they get to bill, they get to bill you know medicare or bill the insurance right. company um, but if a doctor has this conversation with you about, you know, he, here's here's where you are medically, here you might consider hospice, you might consider this, you know, you might consider a number of things, the, the doctor can't bill for that. So this provision would have just allowed doctors to bill for their time doing that. And, you know, I, I think that would have been a, a really important thing because we need more conversation about these things, not less conversation about these things. Uh, but that got blown up and, and, and attacked as death panels and so it was all because it became such a hot button, it was taken out of the Obamacare legislation. Now, I live in New Jersey, but I'm from Massachusetts, and I really thought I heard some of my friends talking about the fact that that was something that Massachusetts passed. Do you know anything about that? Well, I know it's something that New York has passed, which is where I am, and it's you know it's okay. possible that Massachusetts passed it as well in and, and other states. Um, you know, it's just uh, one of the really crazy things is that all of these things are really different depending on what state you're in. You know, it's just this real patchwork. So um, Massachusetts has been pretty far ahead of the curve in so many respects on health care that I wouldn't be surprised if, if that was something that they had. But they, they, they yeah. did pass it in New York State. Yeah, so people probably need to just look into that if they're interested in finding that out. Is it Now, is this changing the way that, do you know, is this changing the way that maybe when doctors are going to medical school, additional courses that they're learning so that they can be better at hospice care? If, if this is, I don't even know if I'm articulating this properly. I guess no, I'm I wondering think, yeah. if when... Okay. You know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, there has been um, real a, a significant change in how physicians are trained. And, you know, and it's not just to really talk about hospice care, but the, the whole context of um, choices at the end of life. I mean, the fact is that people don't, most of us are, don't die quickly. You know, 100 years ago, people got an infection and they were dead, you know, and now right. we have these diseases that you can go on and on for years. There's always something else to try. And at some point, the treatments can be worse than the disease itself. They can be so debilitating. So so, so hospice really happens in the context of a conversation about end-of-life care choices more generally. And I, um, we write about this in the book, and I spent time watching medical students do role-playing about having, you know, breaking bad news, having these difficult conversations. And it's, it, it's very difficult to do, um, but it's really encouraging to see that this is now part of the medical curriculum because 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, it, you know, people could go through medical school and residency training and really never have any training on this aspect of healthcare. Well, and I think it's so 
it's so absolutely 180 from what they are trying to do to detach and not get involved. And hospice really, it's not that you're getting involved, but you're really, uh, there's much more compassion, it seems, for the person. You can, you can be compassionate and stay detached, and that may sound odd to people, but I know, I know I can do that at times because I don't take it home with me. So there's the detachment. But when you're with the person, you are as compassionate as you can be with that person, and it's all about them. 100% is given to that person. And I think sometimes when you're dealing with doctors who are strictly healthcare, it's do this, do this, do this, and they're totally detached and there may not be as much compassion. And yet if they're learning something that will allow them to bring a little bit of that in, then maybe they'll even be better doctors because of it. Well, and I think that's lots of people in the field who do this training would, would say exactly that. You know, it's why the, the whole idea is not, to train only people who want to go into hospice or palliative medicine, but to train someone who's planning to be an eye doctor and someone who's planning to be a cardiologist, whoever it is. I mean, we, you know, we all want our doctors to be able to see us as people, right? And mm-hmm. um, one of the real, you know, the founding principles of hospice was that listening is an essential act of care, you know, and we all want our doctors to feel like we're, they're, they hear us. They see us. They, you know, they're, they're trying to get us. They're not just sort of so, you know, single-mindedly focused on, you know, the blood test result or whatever. Right. You know, because when you go in and you say, I have a 2 o'clock, and someone else comes in and says, I have a 2 o'clock, it's like, okay, we both have a 2 o'clock, and now we have somebody with a 2.15, so we know there's four appointments in 15 minutes. How does that work? You know, yeah. you know you're not going to get a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, now, hospice, I, I believed, and, and I could be wrong here, but I – really thought hospice started over in like England or Europe or somewhere overseas. Did it start there or, or did it start here? Yeah, the first uh, modern hospice was started in London. In, it opened in 1967. And the woman who started it, uh, a doctor named Cicely Saunders, really influenced what happened here. The first hospice here was started in Connecticut in 1974. And really it was a direct result of, uh, you know, a nurse at Yale the dean of nursing actually at Yale went to a lecture that Cicely Saunders gave about this hospice idea that she had, and and uh, you know Yale nurse Florence Wald became so excited that she she quit her job as dean of nursing school and and really devoted her life to to hospice from there. Okay, and then we kind of adopted it over here, which is good. So that's great. We got it moving on. I mean, you know, sometimes we. Sometimes we change things that are really running well in other places, and, and we don't um, we don't really look to see how we can make it better, or we don't really look and see how they started it. But it seems to me like it was started over there, and we followed through with it. And I know in going over to England and having people over there, this is going to sound not good, but in this country, I have people who say to me, if something happens to me, take me to the vet because they treat you better. And I know exactly what they're saying. Because, you know, if your animal goes in and has a disease and they say, well, you can take the animal home for a week and, you know, you know, okay, my cat's not going to eat all week and I'm going to be counting the days until I bring this cat back next week to euthanize it, you know. But over in England, it's – and I know you said doctors can write prescriptions and stuff now, but I think they've been doing that a whole lot longer over there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the law is in England. Um, I, you know, they do it in some other countries. I'm not sure about England. What, one yeah. real difference here is that the hospice, as, as it was started in England, and and as it's practiced really today for the most part, it's, it, it is mostly inpatient residential kinds of places. 
So mm-hmm. home care, there is more home care there now than there was in the beginning, but that was really a an American adaptation. Mm. Now, all these stories that are in your book, how how did you obtain them? And with all, I'm sure you got more than what's in this book. How did you choose? How did you go about yeah, that well, process? <laughs> You know, we, we just talk, we're journalists, so we like talking to people, and we talk with everybody who wanted to talk with us. And, and really, you know, people led us to other people and, you know, friends. And, you know, we, well, the amazing thing we found is that people who had experienced hospice care really, really, really wanted to talk about it, for the most part, because it had been such a positive experience. So um, that's kind of, you know, we gathered lots and lots of stories. And as I said, we, it was really important to us that these be real people, so not composites and that we use real names because we we wanted it you know to be we wanted the book to be accessible and we wanted to write stories that anybody could see themselves and their families in so you know really in in choosing we looked looked for kind of a mix of situations a mix of people uh we have different people of different um ethnicities so we, because there's some cultural aspects that come into play we have you know old older younger we don't have all uniformly positive hospice experiences we you know we really tried to pick a mix that reflected the range of possibilities i, I think you did a great job with it uh you know it does do that and i think that as i said before if, when you read this as you go through it there are a lot of uh, different of stories that actually they kind of hit your heart because it's either close to home it happened in your family or with friends or you've seen others or you've heard about it so people can learn a lot from this book and and to me it is it is something to learn from it's not just to be read and think oh these are these are wonderful stories you learn a lot from this and i think it would be a good guidebook to help people to start initiating conversations in their homes the difficult conversations that nobody wants to have because nobody really likes talking about death it's it's always too far off, and yet it's not. And this actually helps people to live a better life for the time that they have remaining here. And, uh, you know, you guys need to be commended for that. You did a good job. Well, thanks. And, you know, we, we have even more resources on our website. So if I, if I can tell your listeners uh, how to find us yeah. on the web, it's www.changingthewaywedie.com. Yep. And that's actually, it's in the chat room right now. I typed it before the show, and it's on the site as well so that people can go to that. But the book itself, people can get it anywhere, right? They can get it at Amazon.com, or is there a specific place that you Yeah, No, it should be available it everywhere. Might, you know, might be available at your local bookstore. It's certainly on Amazon and all the major online booksellers. And in, in various formats, it's in uh, print, in um, digital. It's soon to come out in Audible and in large type. Oh, wow. Okay, everything. So it's going to run the gamut. Yep. That's great. When you were writing this book, because you did so much on healthcare as a journalist and, you know, winning awards and everything, was there anything when you started down this road to, to learning more about hospice that you learned that really kind of like hit you? Almost like, wow, I had no clue about that. Yeah, so many things, really. Um, you know, I, I, I touched on it. One, I, I was surprised at how big it is, you know, how many people actually do wind up in, in hospice care. And and this whole idea of it's not really just about relieving the suffering of dying, but it's really about helping people to live fully uh, in whatever time they have left. And that's such an incredible lesson for everybody, right? You know, we all 
should be living fully in whatever time we have left. You know, even yes. if that's even if what we think that's you know twenty or thirty years. Um, so just just the lessons that hospice holds for all of us in the way we live our lives was was very profound for me. I think that's probably the biggest lesson that comes from the book is that you can live fully because I don't think people realize that. I think there are so many misconceptions that they don't realize that hospice doesn't mean that you stopped living and you're just waiting to die. That's not what it's all about. And that is very obvious in your book. So if, you, if that was something that came to you as well, we didn't realize that as fully as you did and you wrote the book, it really comes across well in the book. <laughs> Great. That's good to know. It, it did to me. Yeah, it yeah. did to me. And I had a couple of other people look at the book and they said, yeah, you know what? I didn't realize that people were actually living when they, and, you know, they meant really living, like having a life and going out and going for a ride in the car and, you know, doing things and like the woman quilting and, you know, they didn't realize that. So if you can do that until the moment that you're going to pass, well, more power to you. And that's a great thing to have the resource to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your book really spoke well to that. I, I, we're almost out of time. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell people about you or your book before we have to say goodbye? Well, you know, I would just say that really the time to have these conversations is now and not when the crisis happens. Yeah, I agree. You know, like everything else, there are difficult conversations you have to have, and this is one of them. And it wouldn't be as difficult if you go out and get the book Changing the Way We Live by Fran Smith and Sheila Himmel. And again, it's at Amazon or any of your local bookstores. You can get the book, and it's in every format. If you go to the website, you can look it up and see what's available. Um, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I have to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life you're meant to live, productively, healthfully, and purposefully. This is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the link to this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you had so that they can learn and grow and make the world a better place for everyone. Thank you so much, Fran, for sharing your time with us here. It really was a wonderful topic to talk about, as hard as it can be for some. It's it's important and it needs to be put out there. And as you said, the conversation needs to happen now. And I very much appreciate the time that you took to be here. Well, it was a pleasure. And thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 o'clock for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. So go ahead, get out your calendar, and make note of it now so that you remember to tune in next week. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archive list of past shows, a lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year, including the Quartz Crystal Singing Bowl concerts. And if you're not in the area, or you cannot make a concert, you can order my CD Imagine from my site as well. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T. Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. I got a roof over my head I got a warm
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.